It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOT podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at cboc.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts at cboc.com. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jeremy Lokabaugh, Industrial Organizational Psychology Consultant and Workplace Communication and Negotiation Coach. If you're in or getting into the IO psychology field and you feel a little lost in the crowd, you're looking to jumpstart your career and maybe get the answers that your degree program never gave you about what it's actually like to work as an IO psych practitioner, check out CBOC's IO Career Pathfinder membership at cboc.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast that helps us out. Also, we have Tom Bradshaw with us, a voice and speech coach and a damn good actor too. He's the official voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Well, hello everyone and happy Thursday. This is Work Cookie. We're here with IOs, HR professionals, recruiters, and there's even an actor hanging out with some very smart people, including Jeremy. Good morning, Jeremy. <laughs> well done, Tom. How are you? Not well, it's, it's minus 25 this morning. And when it hits minus 40, I'm going to do that thing where I'm going to take boiling water and throw it in the air and just let you see it turn to snow. Yeah, I've always wanted to do that. Yeah, and I'll wash a pair of jeans and then hang them outside. <laughs> just <laughs> hit them with a hammer and break them. Yeah. <laughs> nice. But hey, anyways, we're going to talk about the rise of industrial organizational psychology in workplace operations. Uh, boy, Jeremy, <laughs> I need an IO right now. Um, and there's lots of organizations that, especially after the lockdown and everything we've gone through, employer, employees, their mindset is changing. We, we've never seen work-life balance be so critical it's becoming the number one i think salary is now dropping to like number three but we're also seeing that you know the number one reason that people are leaving organizations is nobody cares you know they're not getting opportunities to advance their career they're working with you know leadership that let's just call it dysfunctional so how do we get ios more involved in organizations that's what I like about, well, I like about this title for today, the rise of IO and workplace operations, because I don't, we're not quite there yet. We're going to get there. And I, one of the main reasons for this topic today is how can we start to get IO more into workplace operations and how can we learn where it fits in and what can be done? <clears throat> I came up with this. I, I, I'm, I'm preparing, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm looking at all these, these articles and doing the research into this and it just popped into my head. Where there is something, there's a variable. Where there is a variable, there's a study. And then when you keep going, where, where there's a study, there's something that is known. And when there's something that is already known, we don't have to scramble to try to figure it out in the workplace. And that's what, in, in general, that's you know, your old school IO psychology is, we're looking at the studies, we're looking at what's already known, we're bridging this gap, what we call between scholar, the academics, and practitioner, which is how are we actually making an impact in the world of work and with organizations and for their business bottom line. I often find that even, you know, and Tom, we have talked and talked and we've talked 
people in different industries, we still have, I still have just this tunnel vision of what world, the world of what world of work looks like. <clears throat> Tom, so we we're planning on doing a Seabock radio, like a radio series. We've talked about that. And it was your idea and it's a good idea. So we're going to do it. So we're looking at doing something like that. And, you know, let's say January or February. And I was talking to Dr. Juliette Nelson, many of you know her, she is looking and doing a one on unconventional work spaces. And we're having this conversation about unconventional versus conventional and your white collar jobs. There's so much because we look at this in terms of leadership and we look in terms of training. So we're looking at these white collar office jobs and we talk about remote work. Well, that's usually your office types of jobs. So with this conversation comes looking at this in terms of, of operations, and I started to think about it and what is unconventional versus conventional work? Wouldn't I thought about it? Wouldn't unconventional work wouldn't be your flight attendants, your construction workers, your food and beverage workers. That would be your conventional workers. I think the unconventional, I mean, if you're looking at it just in terms of what are the majority of people doing versus the minority of people doing the majority of people are your your laborers in a sense so it, it was, it's interesting how we have our perspectives and how different people and organizations have their perspectives and we start to get into these silos and the, this this tunnel vision based on our own experience so i thought many of you if you're not familiar with it there's something called the naics and if you just type in the computer naics you get all these different codes that you can start to look at industries and start to broaden your perspective a little bit. Just for fun, I'll share my screen here. But anyone, if you're looking at the, listen to the podcast, you'll be able to tell. So here you can get an idea and broaden your perspective. And again, I'm going to continue to go back to where there's something, there's a, a variable and where there's a variable, there's a study. I and mean, we've got everything here looking at vegetable and mel melon farming, mining, quarrying and oil and gas extraction, utilities, land subdivisions, highways, grain and oil seed mining, uh, tobacco manufacturing, beverage manufacturing, fabric mills, pulp paper, paper mill boards. And then I started to think about all these things. And I'm like, what are some of the variables that we can look at when we're either consulting in this industry or when we're working in the industry? There's a lot of IOs. Tom, by the way, I'm I'm going off on purposeful tangents right now. So I'm aware of the time that I'm right. thinking, <laughs> but I thought I thought this out pretty pretty well before we started. When you look at IOs, a lot of the it's such a fast growing. People are graduating at a crazy rate with IO degrees, and we're starting to get into this tipping point where organizations can't help. I'm a big fan. I've said this to many people. IO is going to be IO industrial organizational psychology is going to be a household name within five to 10 years. I'm thinking maybe five. And we start to look at what are some of the things that those recent IO graduates or those practicing, but not in their dream job yet, because let's face it, it's not like IT or healthcare where you go to school to become a nurse and then you're a nurse. IO is a little different because we haven't had that proper job introduction into the workplace, even though it's the oldest new field that we've ever known. It's 100 years old, but we still have to respond to the question of IO psychology. What is that? I've never heard of that. 
So what the goal is, I shouldn't say the goal. One thing that can be done is if you're not in your IO job yet, find out whatever you're doing now, whatever industry you're working now. And if you're working in operations, you know, you're on the, you're on the floor, you're working in hospitality, you're working in food and beverage, you're working logistics, whatever it may be, start to look at what are some of the things that matter? What are the variables? What do we know about these variables? And what can be done about it from an IO perspective? One thing that you can do is basically you start practicing IO in your current workplace, and you're also using resume builders. I'm going to stop there because I want to give this some context. I was looking through Again, where there's something, there's a variable. So I figured, okay, I'm looking at the airline industry. So I started to look at articles. Okay, airline industry, what are some of the variables that we can look at and we can study? And I found this article called, and I'll post this up on the, uh, I'll make sure this gets posted on the, when the podcast comes out. It's not a, it's not a psychology uh, study, but it's a study and it has data. So therefore we like it. Do bags fly free? An empirical analysis, we love that word, don't we? An empirical analysis of the operational implications of airline baggage fees. Okay, so it's basically, if if you're an airline and you charge for bags, does that make a difference? And does that change if you don't charge for bags? You think of all the variables and all the things uh, that are involved. I'm gonna read verbatim here. One of the often cited reasons for this action by airlines to make uh, to, I'm sorry, let me start from the beginning. In 2008, the majority of US airlines began charging for the second check bag and then for the first check bag. One of them, one of the often cited reasons for this action by the airlines executives is that this would influence customers to travel with less baggage and thus improve cost and operational performance. A popular customer belief, however, is that airline departure delays got worse due to an increase in the size of customer carry-on baggages because nobody wants to charge, pay extra for the bags. So now they're having oversized bags, too many bags. So then the the um, people on the airlines, on the plane, they got to shove them in, they're breaking things, whatever it is, into the overhead compartments. So there's a study here and they take publicly available a publicly available database of performance, and they found that some some things that matter for the bottom line, right? Airlines that began charging for check bags saw a significant relative improvement in their on-time departure performance. Surprisingly, they found that airlines that did not charge for check bags also saw an improvement, although not as big, when competing airlines flying the same origination destination, city markets implemented the fees. Okay. Great. Sounds good. So what does all that mean? It means that if we're in this, if we're working in this airline space, we, there are other variables. What are the variables involved? Well, you have to look at cost benefit analysis of you're hiring more people. Now you have to train them. Now you have to train them on new regulations. You also have different variables that come in. You have different levels of stress. So now people are or uh, they're not checking their bags, they're taking them on the airlines. So now you have more stress for the airline attendants because now they have to might they might have to deal with more unruly customers, the physical nature of it because now they're having to take when there's too many bags, they end up taking them off the plane anyway. So there's so many different things. So now you're looking at different things like burnout, you're looking at different things like stress, you're looking at things like, and these are all things that can be measured. 
scheduling, uh, new technology and learning it. You're looking at conflict. And that's just, those are just a few. We could probably list out 20 different things that can be measured. So if you're working in that, and just that's just one industry, one quick study. So we can take studies and as psychologists, we can look at what are the variables here? How can we look at what's already known? So then maybe we can see, here's something that's affecting my work group as, uh, you know, even let's say just, you know, let's say I work in maintenance, um, maintenance on the airlines, or I do, I work at the baggage. What can I look at in my role? I'm, I'm going to school to be an IS psychologist. What are some of the things I can look at that I can make suggestions or that I can start to implement perhaps as a leader of my team, understanding what's in the best interest for the airline, the customers, and also the workplace. And this expands and, and keeps going and going based on the discussion that we're going to have. I wanted to provide some of the basis for today's discussion. I wanted to provide a little bit of data, an example, and off to the races we are, Tom. So should people become IO spies? <laughs> like we're going into the organizations and we're not being hired as IOs, but we've got some skills. So we're going to start to change the work environment around us. Isn't that part, I'm going to say partly, isn't that when organi what organizations want? Do they want someone who is just going to, and this isn't a rhetorical question, the answer could be yes or no, depending on who's <laughs> answering it. Do they want someone who is just coming to work, following standard protocol and going home? In many cases, the answer is yes, many yeah. cases. But also think about, the salaries, I always think about this, how much are you paying people's salaries and what more could you be getting out of it if you allow, this is actually the topic for another event in, in December coming up, allowing other people to solve your company's challenges while giving them a sense of purpose. Don't organizations want individuals to be innovative, to be creative, to be aware of their environment, to be aware of processes that could be changed and improved, could be aware of their employee experiences, and also care enough, again, have that emotional attachment to the company, or at least to their work team, that care enough to make a suggestion, to use discretionary effort, which is effort that they don't need to give. Maybe they go home, they get on their computer, maybe they you know, they look up a couple studies, maybe they use it for one of their, who knows, maybe it's an IO in training, maybe they use it for one of their grad projects, who is going to take that time when they're not getting paid to go back and look and just play around with a database, re, a alumni database, or Google Scholar, or whatever it may be, and try to see what I can do to help my company, even though they didn't ask me. And even though it's on my own time. So the answer to your question, Tom, is not really an answer, but you know how I operate. Well, that's the dream, Jeremy, that <laughs> I could go in and I could be helpful to an organization and they would appreciate it. Sometimes doesn't work that way. Uh, Lee, let's go to you. Yeah, this actually brings to mind some, some conversations that I've had recently with people who have been in this situation. And uh, I have talked to people with IO degrees working in a job who had the company hire an outside IO to come in and do something. 
And, you know, and it could be either because, well, you've got a job, we need you to do your job, or they just don't know that the person has any of, of those skills. Um, I also spoke with someone who pretty much got sideways with their supervisor because they tried to, you know, show some uh, some initiative and, and provide some ideas and everything. And it became a threatening situation. And all of a sudden, you know, bad workplace environment going on. So um, can we go into to these workplaces and non-IO positions and do IO or as Destiny says, IOE stuff? Uh, absolutely. I've been doing it, uh, you know, my entire career, you know, which I didn't even realize until Jeremy pointed it out. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, but I, I would I would say that we have to be very cautious and, and uh, you know, keep the ego and hubris in check because uh, you could easily start stomping on toes and put yourself in a, uh, in, a, in a spot that you don't want to be in. And then you ended up with a reprimand. <laughs> <laughs> or worse. Dr. Martha, let's go to you. That's a very good point. It really does depend on so many different things. The organization, the organizational culture, those who are in um, management or power positions above the individual who wants to take the initiative because sometimes it is about ego. Sometimes it is about threatening um, your authority. If somebody else comes up with a good idea, what if somebody else now says, why are you in charge? You don't have these good ideas. So there's so much to maneuver here that sometimes it's more about aligning yourself with the powers that be. And sometimes you have to lead them to think these were their ideas. I mean, sometimes you really have to get tricky, especially when you're already a part of the organization and not necessarily hired to make any changes, but you do have good intentions and good ideas. Sometimes you have to be tricky about it. And that's so sad because so many organizations out there don't know that they need to change, don't know that they need help, or don't know that things could be better done differently. It's so easy to get in that rut. But I would like to think that because we are experiencing this great resignation and quiet quitting, and I think more people now than, I don't know if ever in history is the right word, but in so long, really don't care, really just don't care. And one could look at it with a negative um, filter or lens, but you know what? I gotta say, the company started it. The companies really started it. People have been dedicated for decades, giving their efforts and their best. And it started to dwindle on the companies, on the organization's part. And people finally said, well, you don't care. I don't care. And I think this is what we're seeing as an end result. So there's so much going on. We really have to be quite skillful and sometimes a little tricky if we want to get things done, you may have to get someone else to think it was their idea, align with them, do it in such a way that they're not feeling threatened. So your yeah, imagination I've, might be your best friend there. Yeah, I've certainly seen lots of situations where um, the C-suite has no idea what's going on. <laughs> the managers are dictatorial at best, and the employees are shaking their heads and quitting. Uh, Linda Ann, maybe you can give us some insight. <laughs> no, HR has a problem, has a specific problem in this arena. Um, and, and one of the things I wanted to talk to, to Jeremy about was really the challenge in, in 
this process from my perspective is how do we open the minds to the concepts, the new concepts, the broader thinking, um, the implications of, of certain things, the, the long-term or broad implications of certain things where they don't have to really make that change because things are going along um, as a status quo and they don't really feel that pinch or that need to change. So why would I do that? Even though there's so much potential. So I think that's the real challenge. The other one is, and, and specifically in human resources, is you know they when you have a human resources person in the in the organization, they are often just expected to you know do the paperwork. They don't really want to hear what you have to say. They don't realize how much perspective and information um, you can bring to the table. So that's a challenge there. I think that the benefit of what we've been through with COVID and the, you know, the pandemic and the change to work and all those kinds of things. And I was saying that when we were going in the middle of it, you know, that this was the greatest opportunity to create change, to implement change, right? Because, you know, nobody's going to, nobody's going to take you down because it didn't work. We don't know what works. So, and I feel like some of that window is closing. We're sitting, we're coming, moving into more of a, a new status quo, new complacency, complacency. And so the opportunity to shake things up a bit, I think is, is a window that's closing somewhat. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, it, you know, it, people want a choice in how and, and the way they work, but I'm seeing more and more organizations, you know, just demand that they do things in a certain way and the great resignation continues to happen. Um, Oliver, welcome to the stage. Go ahead and let's hear you. Um, thank you. Uh, so one thing that I wanted to bring up that I think is a really interesting aspect of kind of what's going on is the really tough market forces that are really coming to bear. So during the pandemic, organizations were actually really protected with the PPP loans and with the other uh, government supports so that there wasn't nearly as much risk of organizational failure and it fell much more on the individual. But I think now that that support is starting to be withdrawn, the PPP loans are starting to be called in it's becoming much more competitive and it's becoming an environment where if you can't retain your workers, you're going to fail as an organization. It's not about, you know, the ongoing challenge. It's about the immediate challenge and the end of that. And so I think what's going to happen is a little bit what was going on before where, you know, Apple and a number of other larger companies started to really throw their weight around and started to throw their money around to give services to employees, to, you know, sleep pods, all those really innovative things that some of which seem a little ridiculous, but you know, that idea of investing in the employee and investing in customizing the solution so that each individual can produce their best. And I think one other great trend in that area is the trend towards individual differences and supporting neurodiversity. So one of those big aspects is that every individual has unique strengths that they could leverage for the organization, but frequently they're told, you know, here's the box that you need to fit into things that fall outside of that need to either be cut off or need to stay at home. And so those tremendous benefits are being lost or being missed or being overlooked or just not being utilized. And so I think what's going to happen now, now that it's such a competitive landscape is, you know, like you were talking about during the pandemic, people were trying different things. And I really believe there are small companies now that are customizing to the individual, that are working these tactics and that are using IO psychology. And since they've been born, now comes the competitive edge. Now comes the time when big companies are losing good people in mass and they're looking for somewhere to go. And those organizations that really do foster 
a good employee environment that really do support individual differences and offer opportunities for people to contribute uniquely are going to explode. <laughs> I mean, separate from getting all the best people willing to work at a more reasonable rate because they're being given better opportunities and better lifestyles, you're going to have that organization then, you know, whatever it's doing is going to get bigger because those people have unique ideas. It's not going to be about the original organization, what they were doing. It's going to be about what these individuals can bring to it, what they can contribute and how that can manifest. And once you have these, you know, individual organizations that are exploding, what you're going to see is competition. You're going to see those other big ones that have those dictatorial bosses saying, we can't change, we can't do these things. And you're going to see employees saying, okay, then I'll go over there or you're going to fail because, you know, people aren't staying. This isn't, you know, a manageable process and you're not able to maintain a high level of customer service if you can't maintain your employee base. So I think one of the fantastic things that unfortunately is going to happen is that some of these large organizations are going to fail and the biggest failures are going to point towards the biggest successes and the biggest organizations that can thrive. And so their practices, I think, are going to become contagious. So, so, so they just haven't gotten to the place where it hurts enough yet. And once they get there, they, they might start to change. Well, I don't think it's just hurting. I think it's seeing success. And I think that's the big thing that's going to come because I think these organizations were absolutely born during the pandemic and are absolutely still going. But it takes a long time to move from, you know, a 20, 50 person organization to a multi-billion dollar one. And I think a lot of those small organizations are actually in that process of incredibly rapid growth. And of course, you know, one of the dangers there is that, you know, they could misalign, they could, you know, overextend themselves. And I'm sure we'll lose lots of good organizations to that. But I think those big organizations are going to see that. And yeah. it's, it's going to be the same thing with um, when diversity became such a big thing. You know, organizations that embrace diversity don't just succeed because they don't have the government riding on them. They succeed because now they have all of these unique individuals and unique perspectives that are able to enhance their organization in a way that nothing else could. Yeah, I must admit, with all the remote-only organizations that I've talked to, everybody seems to be happy. <laughs> um, Dr. Martha, let's go to you. Linda Ann brought up a very good point about that window of opportunity for change starting to close because what we're seeing is a lot of companies want to go back to how things were before the pandemic. Everybody back to the office, things back to how they were before. And um, there's some pushback on people working remotely, at least um, you know, in a full-time capacity. Maybe they allow something in a, in a hybrid type of um, arrangement, but there's a lot of pushback from organizations to try and return to how things were done before the pandemic. And I think that in itself could be seen as an opportunity for IOs because we could look at it and say, okay, the window of opportunity for change is closing, oh well. Or as IOs, we could say, okay, well, this is another change, right? If the window of opportunity is closing, that in itself is a change. How can we as IOs get our presence into organizations, big and small, new and old, and start to help out and help try to influence. And um, to what Oliver was saying about these larger organizations that have been around for a while, I agree that unless these um, large companies start to understand that change is a necessity, they will end up suffering. But I think we're a little naive and thinking how quickly they will suffer and will show them how important change is. 
these organizations often have deep pockets and staying power. They've been around for a while. And that's not to say they won't be forced to change or some of them won't go out of business, but I think it's going to take a lot longer than what we think uh, because it is difficult as a new organization. You know, we hear these success stories, these seemingly overnight success stories. These high school kids or college kids started a company, now they're gazillionaires, right? But how often does that really happen? Think about the failure rate of new companies starting out and it goes nowhere or it lasts for a few years and then they're struggling. So we really have to be realistic. All the more reason why we need IOs in there to help people with what's going on as it's happening. Yeah, we really need to get the door open. Jeannie, let's go to you. Well, to further the conversation a little bit, IOs have a direct understanding of what motivates the employees to work harder or change their habits. I mean, change management is all about what's the problem? Why are the employees resisting? What, what exactly is going on? And what's going to motivate them? to do what the leaders want. Um, and as a point on one of the other individuals that said, you know, throwing money at the problem is not always the answer. Research has shown that employees are motivated intrinsically, not extrinsically. So finding out what exactly is motivating the individuals to work harder, um, I work for a uh, healthcare organization that throws out incentives for a uh, shortage of labor. So uh, on a day where we're short nurses, we'll throw out $100 extra per shift or things. And what does that do for the nurses that are already scheduled that day? It's it is demoralizing because they're getting frustrated. They already have to work the shift. They're not getting the extra $100. And it's helping leaders understand, you know what, if you're gonna throw that extra $100 out, then you need to throw that extra $100 out to everybody working the shift, not just those who pick it up. Or it's, um, I have another nurse manager that likes to give incentives um, for doing a good job. You don't have to do X, Y, Z on this particular day, which motivates them on the regular days to work harder or accept the changes or, you know, there's a lot of motivators that enable change and um, different things like that. Yeah, I agree 100%. Linda Ann, let's go to you. <clears throat> I think it's important to um, uh, embrace Dr. Martha's idea that this process is a long haul process, even if you're internal, especially if you're internal, really, um, because it if we're talking about solving a problem, the organization has to perceive there actually is a problem. And so it takes time to sit in those meetings and ask the right questions so that they come up with, oh, darn, that's darn, what are we going to do about that? You know, kind of thing and, and create that mental shift to decide that now we want to actually do something and then explore what what solving that problem looks like and then implementing the process. It's its not a, you know, oh, let's do that next week kind of thing. Uh, and, and, may, <laughs> and, and maybe I'm a little naive, but how, how do you deal with the issues? Because, you know, quite often 
at least some of the research I've been doing, when there is an issue with the employees, it's usually the manager who's causing the issues. Um, and how do you, you know, if that's a situation, there's no problem. <laughs> Leadership perceives, well, there's no problem. I, you know, I did, you know, recently witness an organization where someone went to HR to talk about you know, the frustrations they were having with management, the, uh, they actually got into, you know, an altercation, a verbal altercation with one of, you know, the members of leadership. Um, and so they went to HR and HR threw them under the bus. Yeah. So, you know, that sort of thing is happening. So how, how do we reach leadership? How do we, when, especially when they may be the issue and they see no need to change? I mean, you know, Here's a typical situation where you need IOs. So as Dr. Martha says, you know, how do we open the door? How do we get organizations such as that to even acknowledge that there might be a better way? I hope you're not asking me to solve that problem. <laughs> I'm, I'm asking anyone. That was my question to Jeremy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Jeremy, let's go to you. I'm fighting a terrible cough here, Tom, at that time of the year. <clears throat> so I'll try to mute if I'm going to, so don't disrupt the audio. A company, a company that has a sales team undoubtedly knows when sales go up and sales go down, and they have an eye on their sales number. It's data. They can clearly see it. What's the difference between sales data and employee engagement data? Data is data. So they're going to trust the sale. So let's say that they have an employee engagement survey, a good one, and it shows that employees aren't that engaged. It's pretty easy we need to just look at you know it, it's pretty easy to say okay well we know that employee engagement leads to decreased productivity and increased conflict for example so if you increase employee engagement you increase productivity data is data so when you're it, it to me it's just very cut and dry to me it's very cut cut and dry that that should be easy enough for organizations to simply ask the question Again, no why questions, Tom. Trying to make it a what or how question. How is employee sales data different than employee engagement data? Or you can ask the why question if you want them to defend their position, which is why is sales data important, but employee engagement data is not important? So you could do that. Then they have to defend their position. And look at, again, I'm going to go back to where there's something, there's a variable. Where there's a variable, there's a study. I went to Google Scholar. I typed in the word work. 10 million, 10 million different things came up. Literally, like 10 million. And I typed in the word the, and 14 million came up, which leads me to the belief that there's something not right in that algorithm because the word the is going to probably capture all of them, but maybe there's a, a you know, like a, the speed limit in space kind of thing. But if there are 10 million articles on work, and then you can go and you can filter down. And to say, look, I will, you can filter down by subject, for example, uh, psychology. Okay, great. Uh, productivity. Okay, great. So you can use your, your Boolean, right? You can put your parentheses, not your parentheses, your uh, quotation marks on either side of uh, work and then burnout or whatever it is. And you can even go by industry. It's very easy for anyone to be able to find out what are some of the correlations here and how can we look at, here's a problem that we're facing. Now, 
ideally you have an IO on board who can really look at this data and really can understand and, and can put together something, especially for an executive team or for a board team to say, hey, here's a, almost in terms of a literature review, here's something that can be done. Here's what's not known already in this space of knowledge. Here's what we do know and what's not known in, in the space of knowledge. Here's what we do know and we don't know about this particular work challenge that we're facing. Or again, we don't know what we don't know. Going into the phase of discovery as an IO and asking those good questions. Because if you're, we look at this whole thing, we've talked about it many, many times about the difference between the tactical nature and the strategic nature of the, the practice of industrial organizational psychology. And typically we're we think of ourselves and we are more strategic because we're looking at things that that and we're trying to make sense of things. And then we're creating a strategy that can be executed to provide a, re a result. And when you're looking at this from the aspect of that strategic nature, you're talking to people in the workplace and you're asking the right questions. You're asking the right questions to the board, to, to the executive team, to leadership teams, to the to the frontline workers. And you, it's about getting to this to the bottom of it, and that's your qualitative questioning, your open-ended questioning. You're not assuming that you already have a problem, or you're not assuming that you know the answer to the problem. You could have people coming into work late, and they might say, "That's oh, because of the, it's because of leadership, or it's because of the weather, or whatever." But until you start to ask these open-ended questions and start to go into this discovery phase, you're never going to know which variables to actually look up to see what do we know about these variables, whether it be, and I'll just go with the general ones without digging too deep, whether it be something like burnout or engagement or stress or leadership, we can't assume that it's one thing. We have to go into the, it's again, I'll, I'm going to keep repeating it because it's important, this discovery phase not assuming, meaning we're not going in with a hypothesis of why this organizational challenge exists. So part of that is knowing when to ask what questions, asking the right questions, being able to dig deep to find out what might be happening. And then what might be happening is something where there's something, there's a variable, where there's a variable, there's a study. So then we can look at what is already known in this and how can this be applied to our particular situation in the workplace now. That's it, Tom. That's it. <laughs> Ain't got nothing else. <laughs> oh, well, it was a good start. Lee, let's go to you. Okay. Well, a couple of things. Um, just the, this is from, this could be an argument for, you know, an external consultant in that getting the top down buy in sometimes is easier from somebody outside rather than somebody who's got to go through middle management just to get there. Um, and so sometimes that will actually help you define uh, a problem that other people would like you to never know about. And so, you know, that, so that's one thing. And also when you talk about data and, you know, Jeremy's right on that, you know, one data, it's data. So, but the, the audience and the source of that data can oftentimes be an issue. You know, I, I had a, I had a job, you know, early career that was, you know, data analytics and, you know, they had been using a sales program that showed them what their internal sales were. And it was in, in units. And that was that was their their thing. How much do we sell to these people? How many units? And so they brought me and my team in. We were doing sales side, like for the, the retailers. What were they selling? 
which when you talk to a customer, they're not concerned with what you sold them. They're concerned with what they sold. And then when, but when you take that to the management at my company, they were all just like, well, I'm looking at this thing that I've always looked at. Why do I, why do I need this data? And trying to crack that egg and saying, well, you may not, but your customers do. Your customers don't care about units. They care about how much money they made. You know, what was your price? What was their price? You know, and uh, ultimately it just kind of, it just kind of fell apart because you, we could not get through these old time guys who had been there for 20 years and we've always done it this way and, you know, no reason to change. So, uh, you know, that's not always a good thing. Um, but, you know, but so for the point, I just want to throw this in real quick because, you know, you always got to have a story, right? So, um, you know, back in uh, in the early days of the nuclear Navy, there was an admiral, uh, Admiral Rickover was in charge of the submarine force. And by all reports, this guy was just a jerk. I mean, just terrible, hard to be with. And he went out onto one of the submarines one day and was challenged by the young sailor who was on security. And he, he didn't answer. And the young sailor put him on, put him down. And so when the captain came out and saw the admiral laying on the on the deck, he was, oh, my God, you're done. You're out of here, whatever else. And, you know, the admiral got up and dusted himself off and pointed to the captain and said, you are fired. Pointed to the sailor and said, you are promoted. He did the right thing. I was wrong. And you tried to cover it up. So, you know, that's the kind of leadership that we need. And that's the kind of leadership that we're lacking. Oh, man, you are so right. <laughs> New leaders. We need new leaders. Laura, go ahead. I, <laughs> I can't get I a new love, leader right now, so maybe you can help me. <laughs> I always love the military stories. Um, I appreciate them. And you, I do feel like you get that a little bit more in military contexts when you talk about leaders because there's such a huge safety aspect. So my my affiliation is Air Force and aircraft and things like that. And so if you don't have that, the person who will stand up for the doing the right thing, maybe from a safety standpoint, that's when people die because the plane crashes, the parachute doesn't launch, whatever. So I appreciate those kinds of leaders as much. I love a good, a good military story. My, um, my point kind of was hearkening a little bit more back to the comments about data and convincing people about change or, or using it as a tool and with my military experience, a lot of my work on base was attached to the resilience and the touchy feely and the promoting, you know, good mental health and whatnot. And I found a lot of balance in who I was talking to. If I was working with my social workers and my counselors, then it's gonna be a little bit more of the touchy feely argument versus when I'm talking to the military and the active duty and the people in uniform, they're gonna be more, more data-driven, more purpose-driven. Um, how are we getting the plane in the air? Because we've talked about the touchy feely. So knowing your audience and what's gonna to appeal to them or kind of hearkening back to Lee's example just then about what data is going to trigger them to the change. Maybe you have data that proves it, but it's not data they care about. And so, it, it takes a lot of kind of that um, uh, being clever, like Dr. Martha talked about earlier, knowing your audience and knowing what you need to present and how you need to frame it for them to clue in and be interested. Um, 
one of the things I keep thinking about over the conversation too, is just before this, there was a conversation series in PSYOP and they spoke with Dr. Ben Schneider. And one of the things he talked about was being an external consultant when you go into a business. And one of the things he'd say is like, look, I'll take your money, but um, you know, why aren't you the one talking to your people? <laughs> like, I'll take your money as an external consultant, but you know, why, why are you having to bring me in? So like what Dr. Jeremy was talking about with doing an engagement, using your data from your engagement surveys, but maybe it's not an organizational culture or climate. Maybe they're not engaged because there's someone who is an IO psychologist and really loves organizational development, but they're in an HR role doing compensation and benefits. And that's just not their wheelhouse. Maybe they're not engaged when you go back to the job thing. And that was one of the things that Dr. Snyder said that was like a light bulb moment. So I encourage anyone, if you're attached to PSYOP, go listen to that conversation from earlier today as well, where he, and he said, maybe you just need to focus it back on the job and the work. And we get very caught up in these organizational things and looking at things broader, but maybe we need to boil it back down sometimes to the work aspects and the job aspects and I had some way that I was attaching that to the data argument, but I think I lost it in, in all of my rambling. Sorry. <laughs> That's right. I'm sure it'll come back. Uh, Chelsea, welcome to the stage. Go ahead. Hi, thank you. Um, so my internet was actually touch and go for a little bit. So I think this was actually already covered by Laura, but um, it was just about how um, I, I overheard something regarding knowing your audience and who you're speaking to. So one of the things that I was going to do because I do uh, plan on becoming an external consultant and one of the things to get buy-in is definitely just speaking dollar and cents because that is what is you know, most important to these organizations. So it's unfortunately, like, yeah, they're, they're going to be thinking, okay, employee engagement is important, but why? And then this is the data behind it, but then you give them percentages of like, oh, well, this is productivity. This is that, but what does that mean for them? And then that would essentially result in, okay, well, if your employees are this productive, like say you are, you know, um, alignment or something, you are making products rather than let's say services, because that's easier to quantify. If they're more productive, they produce this many more objects or um, products, which means this many more sales, which means this much more money. And when you when you put it in dollars and cents in that way, then it, they're more likely to become a little more convinced as opposed to like, hey, this is the data I have behind this. This is um, like just showing them different types of numbers and percentages that they may not be interested in. And, you know, you don't want their eyes to glaze over. So, um, and I definitely think this is something that uh, newer people, um, people who are a little newer to the field as myself, because I haven't, you know, become a consultant yet. But what I do plan on doing is um, going to some of these organizations and be like, hey, you may not feel like you have a problem. I'm not even you know, trying to give you solutions to problems you may not believe are there. But what I'm trying to do is, you know, um, not necessarily build a name for myself, but just want to say, like, I just wanted to get out there, speak to organizations and see, you know, what it's like to be consulted. So what I'd like to do is offer free services of just doing like some needs assessment. And then, you know, once they offer that it's free, like maybe they'll just think of you as someone who's doing some project, not necessarily as a student, but just, you know, helping out, this is more for yourself. But then if you still end up with this needs assessment, their results that you provide them, they may realize the problems that they actually have that they did not originally realize were there. 
I, I hope so. Or, or, or they think you're crazy. <laughs> Once again, you know, it depends on how much leadership wants to change. And, and, and I'm not sure we're there yet. Uh, Dr. Martha. Couple of things. First, I think I might like to see a story hour with Lee. Maybe that's a new podcast idea. I think I would enjoy that immensely. But uh, back to what Dr. Jeremy's saying. Yes, data is data. But you know what? That's a conversation between two scientists because only a scientist or a researcher gets excited about the idea of data because we understand how much you can find out. But for everybody else, it can be confusing, it can be boring, all the more reason why an organization really needs an IO to help them out. But the other thing about data is that while data is data, you have to be very careful with how you obtain this data. And this may be even more meaningful for small companies. If let's say you do a survey amongst your employees to uh, try to figure out what is the engagement or productivity or anything. Do your employees have enough trust in this whole survey to begin with? Um, who's administering it? Who's going to see the raw data? Who's going to interpret it? Even if it's all anonymous, do they have enough trust to be honest in filling these surveys? If you have something like open-ended questions where people write answers, especially in a small company, it's not difficult to pick out people by the way they talk and by the way they write. So there may very well not be as much anonymity as we might like to think. So there's a lot to consider there because data can be very valuable, but you have to figure out how to get it so that it's honest data and not uh, data that has been altered or tailored not to uh, anger any bears and any higher up positions because if 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 those people have access to look at the raw data um, they may very well know exactly who said what and who answered what and that may inspire um, those seeking those surveys to be very careful with their answers and not necessarily honest yeah trust is a big issue and it can be broken so easily um, and then they <laughs> it's like i'll talk to professional speakers about statistics I can take the same set of statistics and prove the argument either pro or con, it doesn't matter. Linda Ann, let's go to you. So I, I agree data is data. However, um, just providing data doesn't always work. And the example that I have for that is I worked for a company um, and I, because I, in, in HR, you do metrics and, and so forth. And this was a uh, study, 40 years of data, right? They did an annual report for 40 years. It was an industry specific report and, um, you know, trended all those kinds of things. And it had sliced and diced the industry into small, medium, and large companies, small, medium, and large with specific emphases. So it was in my mind, something that pe that the organization couldn't say, oh, well, we're different than that. No, 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 you're not different. Um, and <laughs> I showed them where specifically, what part of, of the information where they were losing a million dollars in profit, a million profit, not revenue, profit. And they, and I could not get them to bite. No, I provided it to other people. I could not I'm like, 
when do you give up the ship, you know, kind of thing. Um, so, and part of it was, I think that I wasn't the technician, I, but I, I was providing. So uh, it's still, even though you have good data, um, it can still really be a challenge to get people to um, accept that they're not doing everything quite right. Yeah. It, it and maybe sure. it's a reflection on my, how I presented the data to them or, or whatever, but I just can't even believe that they would just ignore a million dollars of profit, right? Yeah, that 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 really does happen out there. Um, why? Who knows? Uh, Gary, maybe you have an answer for us. Uh, go ahead and unmute. Well, I'm I'm thinking about bringing a different perspective to this to this conversation and asking a, a big question, a big what if question. What if these large companies want the great resignation? What if it's a way to cull their workforce, get rid of the uh, people who will push back in the workforce, for example, and actually retain the people in the workforce who are happy to comply, who are happy to conform? And maybe that's why we see a lot of companies not investing in change to mitigate the great resignation, but instead they're putting their money into more recruiting, creating a revolving door where hopefully at one point they'll get that employee that's okay with low pay that gets that's okay with whatever you know mandate or policy that the company wants to put in there at the same time they might be looking at ai to reduce uh, to fill some gaps and things like that so i think sometimes you know my my background's in clinical psychology so i'm always looking at hey is the presenting problem the real the real problem and the other piece that i uh, like to emphasize is, is that a lot of people at the tops of these large corporations are really smart and they're really good at strategic thinking. And I think they've done the math. So if you see them being seemingly okay with these big losses and these this great resignation, that makes you think, wait a minute, what are they, what might they see in this? What might be the longer, what might be the longer term plan? So then us as IOs, you can try as much as you want to say, hey, you know, I've got a great idea for change, but you're really just beating your head against the, a wall. They're not being completely transparent with you. Um, again, I put that out there as a huge, just difference of perspective, a huge, you know, what if, um, because I think before we start going down any path, you really have to understand what is the real goal here and who are the real actors who are pulling the strings and, and you know, what, what's the, what really is the big plan? So I'm, I'm just, Again, just just putting that out there for a different point of view. That's a great point of view, and <laughs> um, I, you might be right. Um, <laughs> data or Jeremy, we need more data. Uh, Jeannie, let's go to you, and then Nijet, and then Jeremy. We're, we I think we've only got about uh, four or five minutes left. So, uh, short, please, Jeannie. So, what I want to say to that, and it is a good point. There's a lot of executives that are extremely smart and extremely wise in that sense. However, um, working in healthcare, and I'm bringing to perspective a different line, um, you have multiple different organizations. You have the administrators, you have the clinicians, um, you have clinicians who are administrators, and you have so many hands in the bucket that if not every leader can agree on the certain path to take, that's where organizational effectiveness, who decides what course to take and sometimes uh, decision analysis or decision paralysis gets in the way of actually making these decisions that an IO can present 
because even the leaders can't agree on the best course of action. Yeah, hundred percent. And <laughs> you know who really needs an IO? Elon Musk. Elon Musk needs to bring an IO in. <laughs> Amani, let's go to you. Oliver, and then Jeremy, we're over to you. Hi, everyone. Uh, Imani here. And I uh, just wanted to start by saying, uh, you're all missing a point here, you know? And I think you're all just having information overload here. What, what's the point we're missing? Exactly. So for a second, I guess you're all say, saying, what is she talking about? You all started, right? So as IO psychologists, we have all this information. And we think when you get into organizations, you're getting into the, with all this information and we're going to be forgetting the basics of at least what Gary talked about. Questioning, transitioning into this organization and then breaking even. This idea, somehow idea what I got is, um, I think in organizations, when you're on the low positions, it's all about making decisions when you're in the low positions. But the higher you go in leadership, it becomes political. And within the political world, we have negotiations. I'll get to Jeremy, what I learned from Jeremy last time. I was in certain cohort with him. And then with negotiations comes influence. And only in this way, as IO psychologists, we can be able to get into these organizations and knowing what, what somebody talked about, knowing our audiences. And that is the power, where that there lies a the power for you to come to influence with all your ideas. I just came into my, you know, when I just started my opening of the opening of the of my talking, I said you're all missing a point. I guess most of you went into a defense mechanism whereby you're all ready to make a counterattack. So imagine this was you getting into an organization with all the information you think is going to be working for an organization. You know, negotiations is also what I learned from Jeremy saying what you have to say what they're thinking. You know, so usually when I'm on the phone, I'm an emotional support counselor. I work, I have a night shift. I work with people, different kinds of people I get from people from tech. I get the people from the lowest, uh, I get for the old people, the young. And I have to first negotiate my way for them to know that I can provide. So most of them, some of them will judge me according to my accent. And one thing that I've learned was what I learned from Jeremy that I took with me out of a cohort was saying what they're thinking. Most of them even think I'm out of California. I'm in Africa. And then I just throw back. I'm like, no, I'm, and I just said, you think I'm not in the country, but right now it's 10 a.m. And they're oh, you are in actually in California. And then they start making conversation with me. They break even, they tell me what their issue is. I support them. And my, com my conversation with them just goes, nicely and i think these are we need the basic skills here just knowing um somebody said that the difference between social workers and counselors and then also the military base while dealing with them there's only one thing that binds us all together emotions because if you're going to come in in a way that is going to be like pointing you people don't know what you're talking about i know i'm the io psychology i'm going to build a defense and then the information you're going to present is not even going to be effective whether it's an organization that needs to build trust it needs to first be penetrated with your skills of how you have to relate with these people knowing bringing yourself to their ground steps you know you know yes we know and these people need us 
but just aligning ourselves with them and then break it will only give us a break even with these people. So I uh, haven't yet stepped into the role of IO psychology I, because as a human, we all have the whole, I, what I really have is the imposter syndrome, but with all this information overload, I think we need to be really way out. And I was really falling more on the Gary side of you have to question where we use things like active listening and under active listening, we have that, you know, you have to be the one to listen even more where you're doing the non-verbal cues of, oh, mm, ah, whereby somebody feels like you're listening to them and then remembering, giving in a few things to these individuals. Some in, within organization, you can have leaders and then giving them a few things, just stepping back from the whole formal place and then stepping back and then have something that you can relate with them so they can be able to relate with you. We have under active listening, we have words of encouragement. We have, you, you as organizationally, they are being in, in between the science world and also the, the, the emotional world, or let's say the counseling or the mental health, because I work in the mental health field. And it's like we're having a balance of those two and we have to learn how to really align those. That's what I wanted to say. And thank you so much. <laughs> Well, it's very well said, and it's the first time I met you, and I like you already. Um, <laughs> oh, second time I'm meeting you because you gave me a lecture <laughs> on how to talk. I'm talking from the stomach up, and I'm still practicing on that, Brad. <laughs> well, congratulations. You've passed. <laughs> um, Oliver, let's go to you. You'll be the last one. Then Jeremy will come to you the wrap. Definitely. I, I just first wanted to say that, Imani, I think your point is incredibly important. I think that one of the things that we've been dancing around a little bit is, you know, how to convince leaders of this quality, of this importance. And I think one of the biggest aspects of that is the emotion of fear. I think they are terrified that change is going to put them in a wrong direction. They're going to make a bold do move and it's going to turn out terribly. And I think that they, you know, looking at data provides, you know, insight and provides direction. But it doesn't always provide the level of confidence that seeing someone else do it and succeed provides. And I think that, you know, again, as we see different organizations move through this process, the two main motivating factors are the carrot and the stick. So they're going to see companies succeed. They're going to see data that shows that they can too, and that's going to motivate them forward. And they're going to see companies fail, and they're going to see people laid off in mass, and they're going to try to avoid that. But the other thing that I wanted to talk about um, related to Gary's point um, is kind of an, a question of what is the difference between the people who are leaving and the people who are staying. And that aspect of, you know, being willing to bear these burdens, I think is absolutely a significant part from the organization's perspective. But I think it would be interesting to look a little bit more holistically to see what are the other qualities of those individuals? Are they more independent? Is that related to creativity? Is that related to other qualities that are valued, maybe not at the ground level, most of these organizations are, you know, have a flow of promotion and they look for the people with the greatest insights to rise. And if they're stripping out the people who are the most creative or who require those unique aspects to thrive, then I think that's going to turn it into a much more homogenous and you know, less creative organization. And that's going to be interesting to see competitively, you know, because that's that's a you know deep level change. That's something that once it happens, you're not really going to be able to shift back. Like you can't invite, you know, suddenly become an environment that fosters creativity and fosters unique ideals when you've excluded people who meet those criteria for, you know, a significant period of time. So I think, again, it's really interesting to look at those different aspects, the people who are staying and also the people who are leaving and what that's going to do, because this huge pool of potentially very creative, potentially very individualistic individuals are now on the job market. And it would be really interesting to see how that 
how the job and, market responds. Yeah. And Jeremy, let's come back to you to wrap this up. And, and, you know, we really are sort of in the midst of the great experiment, you know, <laughs> things are changing. We don't know where they're going to go, uh, but we've got some other topics coming up. We do. So, and, and, and first I want to make an announcement that I have three new best friends today. This is, I love, I love the new additions to our, to our open mic. As soon as Gary, should, like, you know, Tom, I love Tom, this different perspective. Gary, as soon as you share that that example and that just complete perspective shift and looking for what if, I was like, Gary's my new best friend. And then, and then of course, Amani with all the accolades and, and sharing all those things. And here we got to look at, look, okay, how much political capital do people have and how much are they willing to spend? And then how do we get them and talk to them and ask the questions in a right way so that they want to spend their political capital on us? And then Oliver with just stunning analysis. So this is this is great. I got three new best friends today. So thank you. Thanks for have, listening to this episode uh, of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at Seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Don't forget to check out our corporate, career boost, recruiter, and even student memberships at cbock.com. Yes, back to one last thing, what Amani was saying. You got to live in the other person's world to see their perspective, and then you can speak to their perspective. So right on, Amani. Thank you so much. We've got uh, our go to the event section. We've got still tons of events coming up this month, uh, as we do every month. Our momentum sessions. Tom, you were there for the last one with Stephanie. She posted something on LinkedIn. I don't know if you saw it, but that accountability measure, she had a great realization and did that thing Saturday that we mentioned. So we do a lot of great member events. Check out the event section. Tom, that's all I have. Thank you, everyone. Tom, masterfully done as always, signing out, closing out in five, four, three, two, and one.